Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An insane asylum ravaged by a deadly plague. By midnight, 30 people had died. The naked truth behind a scandalous portrait. 200,000 people greet this guy on the streets of Boston. And the unhinged mind behind a wave of terror. Sooner or later, this individual was going to kill someone. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Atlanta, Georgia. The capital of the Peach State was burned to the ground by Union forces in 1864, but has since risen from the ashes to become a cultural center of the South. And not far from downtown is one of the city's most celebrated artistic institutions, the Center for Puppetry Arts. Inside, visitors can marvel at an enchanting array of puppets from around the world, including American favorites from the masterful Jim Henson. But few of the items here can boast the impact of one particular piece. It's about 27 inches tall with six strings. He has a gentleman's coat on and a black top hat with a little card stuck into the side. As exhibitions director Melissa McCarricker can attest, this marionette's haunting expression belies its influence on a most joyous celebration. This marionette was inspiration for the most iconic and spirited spectacles in American history. How is this wooden clown linked to one of our nation's most celebrated events? 1924, New York City. German-American Tony Sarg is one of the most prolific commercial artists of his time, churning out illustrations for popular magazines like the Saturday Evening Post, Good Housekeeping, and Vanity Fair. But for all his successes, his heart lies with another craft. 
His true passion was really puppetry. He started to perform for his friends and different people, and it became very popular through his sort of witty storytelling and his sense of humor. Interest in Sarg's act spreads beyond his inner circle, and he finds the backing to mount a show on Broadway. One night, a person attends who will set his career on an entirely new path. The president of Macy's department store, Herbert Strauss. He was so impressed with the way that the puppets came to life that he asked Tony Sarg if he would create some window displays for the store at the holiday times. Sarg jumps at the opportunity, thrilled by the idea of reaching an audience larger than any theater could possibly accommodate. Tony decides to create Macy's Wonder Town, only this time, instead of him uh, moving the puppets, they would actually move themselves with mechanisms. Sarg's animated window display debuts to great fanfare in November 1923. Strauss is elated, but his joy quickly turns to worry over how he's going to top the spectacle the following year. And then it hits him. He'll stretch the Christmas shopping season back into November and kick it off with a citywide extravaganza. Herbert Strauss decided that he was going to do a parade and it was going to be on Thanksgiving Day. Because Sarg's window creations were so successful, Strauss naturally hires him as the pageant master. And so Tony had the idea that he was going to have one of the greatest and largest spectacles that would run through New York. Sarg sets to work building festive horse-drawn floats, crafting farcical oversized puppets, and sculpting giant papier-mâché heads of odd creatures. And finally, on Thanksgiving Day 1924, New Yorkers throng the six-mile parade route, stretching from 145th Street in Harlem down to Macy's at 34th Street and Broadway. It's a mammoth carnival filled with Sarg's creations. So there was an enormous shoe for the old woman in the shoe and Humpty Dumpty and also Little Red Riding Hood. But what begins as a fantastical dream brought to life becomes an ordeal for crowds of onlookers. All the action was actually at street level, so only the first few rows of people could really see what was going on. Most people leave disappointed and frustrated by the event, and Strauss worries that this will cost his company valuable customers. But he also believes Sarg is the only person innovative enough to find a solution. So he turns to Tony and he says, you need to fix this. You have to come up with an idea to make this parade great. So Tony's in his studio and he's trying to come up with an idea to make the parade high enough for people to see. And when he looks at his marionettes, just like this one on display at the Center for Puppetry Arts, the answer strikes him. He realizes the great thing about a marionette is the puppet master is above using the marionette and the puppets below. What if he could do something similar but have the puppet above and the control from below? Sarg sets out to build balloon-like puppets that are light, durable, and easily manipulated. So he creates these figures and animals out of rubber, and he fills them with oxygen, and he uses these long rods and sticks to support them so that they can be carried along the parade route above the crowd. And in the 1927 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, his puppets debut to instant acclaim. 
people were so excited by the parade and they thought that Tony Stark was brilliant and a true innovator. In 1928, Sarg replaces oxygen with helium and rubber with silk, allowing the balloon puppets to grow in size and shape. Today, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade remains an iconic American event. And this puppet, designed by Tony Sarg and on display at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, Georgia, symbolizes the inspiration that made one man's dream of becoming a puppet master come true. Salem, Oregon. Founded in 1842, this state capital is nicknamed Cherry City for its tradition of producing the ruby red fruit. But not far from the tranquil groves and trees that still dot Salem is an institution that recalls a different aspect of the nation's 33rd state, the Oregon State Hospital Museum of Mental Health. Housed in what was once the state mental hospital, the museum showcases antique artifacts historically used in the treatment of the clinically insane, including an operation table, a straitjacket, and handcuffs. But among these terrifying tools of restraint is a pair of seemingly harmless household items. The two of them are round. One is sort of round and flat, and one is round and spherical. They are smooth. They have obvious wear. According to museum board member Catherine Dyser, these everyday dining implements were at the epicenter of a shocking event that terrified the staff and residents of this psychiatric institution. They are a chilling reminder of a dark day in the hospital's history. What role did this plate and bowl play in a horrific and deadly tragedy? November 18, 1942, Salem, Oregon. The Oregon State Hospital is home to patients ranging from the very young to the elderly, each one being treated for various psychological disorders. And this evening, as is customary, over 500 patients and staff sit down to enjoy a meal together. On the menu, scrambled eggs. But before anyone is finished eating, it is apparent that something is terribly wrong. Within 15 minutes after people eating the eggs, they began to get sick, really sick. Hundreds of diners are instantly affected by the same symptoms. They had nausea and vomiting. Some were retching blood. And the sickness shows no signs of slowing down. Within an hour, the first person had died. By midnight, 30 people had died. In the face of this uncontrollable outbreak, the staff sends out a desperate plea for help. Doctors and nurses from all around Salem immediately reported to the hospital. But assistance arrives too late for some. Eventually, 47 people die from the mysterious malady. Doctors and the public are baffled. How could so many lives have been claimed so quickly? State Police Captain Walter Lensing and his fellow troopers are tasked with investigating the terrifying incident. They were pretty quickly able to determine that it was the eggs that was the one consistency amongst all the people who were sick. Police interview the two cooks who prepared the fateful meal, A.B. McKillop and Mary O'Hare. But the session yields no clues. The cooks said that they had no idea of what happened, that they had 
made the eggs the way they had always made them, by using powdered milk and the frozen egg yolks. Baffled, Captain Lansing wonders if the outbreak is simply an unfortunate case of food poisoning. And he inspects the kitchen for signs of contamination. They checked the freezers, they checked the way food was stored, but everything was fine. While investigators search for answers, autopsies are performed on the victims. The results are stunning. Pathologists find that their stomachs contain alarmingly high levels of a chemical known as sodium fluoride. While minute levels of the chemical are harmless, each victim is found with about five grams in his system, a lethal dose. So who tainted the eggs with this dangerous chemical and why? November 1942, 47 patients at the Oregon State Hospital in Salem have been lethally poisoned while eating a meal of scrambled eggs. Investigators soon discover that the fatal feast contained a massive amount of the toxic chemical sodium fluoride. So who laced the eggs with this deadly ingredient and why? Investigators determined that the eggs were originally intended for the military, but surplus batches were sent to various civilian organizations, including schools and state institutions across the country. Now investigators wonder, with World War II raging, was the hospital the unintended target of enemy spies? The major concern was that somebody had sabotaged these eggs because America had gotten into the war. Authorities immediately track down and inspect other shipments of eggs from the surplus. But to their surprise, those eggs are not contaminated. Then, just when Lansing thinks the investigation has stalled, the cooks at the Oregon State Hospital, A.B. McKillop and Mary O'Hare, come forward with a stunning admission. They tell him that their kitchen is chronically short-staffed and that it's not uncommon for patients to help out. And on that fateful evening, McKillop had asked one of those patients, a man named George Noson, to retrieve a container of powdered milk from the storeroom. George Noson went down to the basement. He saw what he thought was the powdered milk. Noson took the unmarked canister and hurried back to the kitchen with around 17 pounds of a white powder. And five or six pounds of that was mixed into the scrambled eggs. But what no one realized is that they weren't mixing powdered milk into the eggs, but rather a deadly ingredient. It was cockroach poison. It was kept in a large, unmarked container. Massive amounts had been stirred into the egg yolks rather than powdered milk and distributed to the patients. The cooks plead with Lansing for lenience and say they had not admitted this tragic mistake earlier for fear of being charged with murder. Still, McKillop, O'Hare, and Noson are immediately arrested for the deaths of 47 people. But when a grand jury hears their case, it reaches a surprising decision. They declined to return indictments against either cook, and they also brought no charges against Noson. Ultimately, the unfortunate incident is deemed a tragic but innocent mistake. And today, this plate and bowl from the asylum now on display at the Museum of Mental Health, are a chilling reminder of the darkest day in the history of the Oregon State Hospital. 
nestled at the juncture of the Columbia River and the Pacific Ocean. The village of Ilwaka, Washington was a hub for travelers in the 19th century. And just steps away from the picturesque waterfront is an institution that celebrates the region's lush past, the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum. On display are handicrafts made by the Chinook Indians, the area's earliest inhabitants. An 1800s life raft used for water rescue. And a narrow-gauge Pullman car from the Ilwaco Railway. But tucked away in the museum's cold storage is an artifact that speaks to an epic tale of a stripped-down adventure. It is about 30 and a half inches tall by 18 inches wide. The image is of, of a man in profile. And uh, he's not wearing much. According to local expert Aaron Webster, this artifact tells the story of one man's journey to expose the naked truth. This was the most sensational news story of its time. Who is the scantily clad man depicted in this portrait? And how did he scandalize the American public? 1913, Boston, Massachusetts. More and more Americans are moving to urban centers, and Beantown is bursting at the seams. And as the population grows, so does its appetite for news. Boston was one of the most competitive media markets in the nation, with about 10 different newspapers. Embroiled in the heated battle to sell papers is an ambitious 44-year-old illustrator for the Boston Post named Joe Knowles. The Post's bottom line is lagging, but Knowles has an idea for a series of daring stories that he thinks will grab readers' attention. So he approaches his editor. Joe's plan was he would go into the woods entirely naked, spend two months, and return having proven that a modern person could live comfortably in the woods. It was kind of a crazy proposition. Joe explains that he'll write accounts of his adventures on tree bark using charcoal and that hunting guides will collect the stories and send them to Boston for publication. Convinced that urban dwellers will embrace the tale of an everyman's wilderness adventure, the editor agrees. To his editor, if it went poorly or well, it would still make some good reading. So, on August 4th, at the edge of the woods in Eustis, Maine, Joe embarks on his journey all natural. He starts off wearing a suit, but before long, you see him peeling off his various layers until he's down to only a jockstrap. Once he's out of sight, he removes the last of his clothing. Before long, the paper receives the first reports from the impromptu woodsman. Joe is not a happy camper. He spent his days running circles around trees just to keep warm. He was cold, miserable, and wanted to give up. But Knowles quickly adapts. He tells of building his first successful fire. And soon, he regales readers with stories and illustrations of fashioning clothes and shelter and killing a bear with an improvised club. Joe was just an awesome storyteller. People were hanging on every article, every word. Finally, on October 4th, Joe's adventures come to a climactic close. 61 days after he entered the woods, he walked out covered in bear skin and dirt. It seems Joe Knowles has done the impossible, survived the wilderness, and saved the paper. 
During the two months that Joe was appearing in the Boston Post, its circulation tripled. Upon his return, Knowles receives a hero's welcome. 200,000 people greet this guy on the streets of Boston. Joe is a total instant celebrity. But not everyone is convinced his stories are real. The rival paper claims it was just 100% hoax. Some believe the Post competitor is simply trying to stir controversy and sell papers. But others begin to wonder, did nature man Joe Knowles really survive in the wild? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's 1911 in Boston. When illustrator Joe Knowles' gripping account of surviving naked in the woods hits the pages of the Boston Post, the paper's readership soars. But some question the veracity of the so-called nature man's tale. So is Knowles' story of survival really the naked truth? The saga of Joe Knowles versus the wild is pushed to the back pages when a new story seizes the national headlines. World War I. Joe's stories weren't on the front page anymore. He sort of fades into obscurity. So Joe retreats to the West Coast and begins to make a quiet life. He settled down to end his days as an artist on the coast of Washington. Years after his adventure, he creates an idealized charcoal drawing of himself as the nature man. 
the same portrait now kept at the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum. Then, in 1938, New Yorker magazine prints a stunning tale about the naked survivalist. A source alleges that Joe's tale is complete fiction and that he helped to write it. His name is Mike McKeough. Mike McKeough is kind of a drinking buddy of Joe's from Boston. According to McKeough, it was a very well orchestrated and completely fake endeavor. McKeough claims that he and Knowles concocted the scheme to make a name for themselves. And that while the public thought that Joe was enduring the elements, the two friends were comfortably holed up in a cabin, eating canned food. Knowles vehemently denies the allegations and swears that his version of the trip is the truth. But in 1942, the real story behind this sensational adventure is put to rest when Joe Knowles passes away. We'll never know exactly what Joe did in those woods. Today, this scantily clad self-portrait of Joe Knowles, housed at the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum, is a fitting token of one man's naked ambition to tell a lofty tale and seize national attention. Perched along the Little Miami River, Loveland, Ohio is known for its historic downtown and scenic trails and byways. But just outside this Midwestern gem, tucked away on a sprawling horse farm, sits a place of intrigue and secrecy. This is the Salon de Magie. Here, artifacts including an antique spirit board, a silk vanishing gun, and a collection of magic wands help tell the story of the art of illusion. But one finely honed object stands as a testament to the darker side of magical entertainment. The artifact is approximately four feet in length, silver in color, heavy in weight, and is sheathed in a jeweled and gilded case. Magician David Stahl can attest that this sword is more than a mere prop brandished by a world-famous magician. The sword is the key to solving the mystery behind one of magic's biggest tragedies. Who wielded this blade? And how is it linked to one of magic's most macabre performances? 1911, London, England. One of the most successful and highest paid magicians of the day is Sigmund Neuberger, better known as the Great Lafayette. The Great Lafayette was best known for his impersonations and his quick change. This was where he made incredible costume changes in seemingly no time whatsoever. His best known performance of this was a spectacular called The Lion's Bride. It's how he closed every show. This 25-minute display features the magician appearing as several different characters in an elaborate story set in a Persian harem. In the end, he swaps places with a live lion, just as it's about to attack a beautiful maiden. But while the great Lafayette is a natural onstage, out of the spotlight, it's quite a different story. In the private world, he was quite introverted and really took to himself his one constant companion is a dog, a spunky mutt named Beauty. The eccentric magician dotes upon his self-professed soulmate. Beauty traveled in only first-class style and was spared no expense when it came to lavish dinners at the finest restaurants. 
On April 30th, Lafayette and Beauty arrive in Edinburgh, Scotland for a sold-out two-week run of performances. But soon, tragedy strikes. On May 2nd, Beauty takes ill and later dies of apoplexy, a condition of overeating. The great Lafayette was absolutely devastated. For years, the magician has said that when Beauty dies, his own death would shortly follow. It will come to be an eerily prescient statement. May 9th, 1911. The great Lafayette is finishing his performance with a spectacular rendition of The Lion's Bride. He's dressed as an Ottoman official with a bejeweled sword at his side. But just as the finale comes to a close, disaster strikes. Suddenly, a fire breaks out on stage. Sparked by an electric lantern, the flames quickly consume the stage. The audience escapes unscathed, but some performers aren't so lucky. Among those missing in the chaotic aftermath is none other than the star of the show, the great Lafayette. Less than two hours later, when the flames are extinguished, the grim search for victims begins. The fire brigade found the body in the center of the stage wearing the great Lafayette's outfit and bright silver sword at his side. This key prop, now on display at the Salon de Magie, seems to offer definitive proof of the great magician's untimely demise. But when Lafayette's attorney arrives and views the disfigured body, he makes a startling discovery. The magician had always worn a special diamond ring, but the body that had been identified as Lafayette was found without the telltale piece of jewelry. The great Lafayette's attorney began asking questions concerning the ring. If it wasn't on the body, where was it? No one is able to locate the ring among the items recovered from the scene. Soon, some start to wonder, is this even the famed magician? And if not, who is it? And what's happened to the great Lafayette? It's 1911 in Edinburgh, Scotland. The world-famous magician, the great Lafayette, has just been killed in a tragic fire. But when a body is found without his signature diamond ring, some begin to wonder, is this really the great magician? Or is his death merely an illusion? Rumors quickly begin to circulate that the great Lafayette, in fact, escaped the flames. But why would he pull such a dramatic disappearing act? Many speculated that the death of his dog, Beauty, may have been motivation enough for the great Lafayette to never want to perform ever again. But then, days later, as the fire brigade is digging through the rubble at the damaged theater, they make another shocking find. They discover, underneath the stage, yet another body. By its side lies a silver sword, identical to the one found earlier. And there's more. The body had, indeed, the diamond ring proof positive that that had to have been the great Lafayette. The identification is confirmed by a forensics expert, and thousands mourn the loss of this great illusionist. But one question remains. Whose body was found in the immediate wake of the fire? Unbeknownst to the public, the great Lafayette deployed body doubles dressed in identical costumes 
to pull off his famous quick change acts. And it seems the first body found was that of a stand-in. The sword, originally found on the body double, led everyone to believe they had found the great Lafayette. Today, this blade on display at the Salon de Magie in Loveland, Ohio, tells us of the looming legend of the great Lafayette and his final act of deception. The modern city of New York was created in 1898 when all five boroughs consolidated into one government. And today, records of this city's illustrious past are held in the municipal archives. Its collection includes records of a 1655 city clerk meeting, an 1855 topographical map of Central Park, and a photo collection of public works projects. But amidst these more conventional documents is one item that holds a dark and sinister story. The brown accordion folder. It's approximately 14 inches wide and two inches thick, and it is wrapped in a red ribbon. According to author Michael Greenberg, this file contains an explosive tale that unleashed waves of panic across the Big Apple. This particular artifact reminds us that terrorism can come in all forms and it is not necessarily a new phenomenon. What do these papers reveal about a city held hostage and the frantic hunt for a madman? December 2nd, 1956, Brooklyn, New York. Police are dispatched to the Paramount Theater. There they discover an explosion has ripped through the building, injuring six people. One of the witnesses stated that it sounded like a grenade had gone off, sending shards of metal and debris into patrons. Police cordon off the theater and search for clues. They go through each and every aisle, finding fragments and other evidence associated with the crime. They determine that the blast was made by a homemade pipe bomb, similar to ones that have detonated in such landmarks as Grand Central Terminal, Macy's, and Radio City Music Hall over the past 16 years. After each of these attacks, newspapers received a series of anonymous letters, each one filled with nonsensical rantings and ravings, which lead the press to dub the man behind this reign of terror the Mad Bomber. But authorities have no suspects. There was a great deal of concern that sooner or later, this individual was going to kill someone. Under the gun to solve this crime, police captain Howard Finney is willing to try anything. So he seeks unconventional assistance from a man named James Russell, a psychiatrist at the forefront of a new form of investigative research called criminal profiling. His method was to try to extract certain psychologically relevant data, and from that data, determine a diagnosis of sorts. Dr. Brussel believes he can use this technique to identify the mad bomber, but some remain skeptical. It had never been used in the United States in an active police investigation. Can Dr. Brussel find the elusive mad bomber before he strikes again? It's 1956, 
New York City has been terrorized by a series of explosions set off by an anonymous criminal nicknamed the Mad Bomber. With the investigation at an impasse, police turn to Dr. James Brussel, a psychiatrist who claims he can solve the case. So can Brussel identify the bomber before he strikes again? In search of clues about the Mad Bomber's background and personality, Brussel analyzes his letters. He felt that the letters used a certain stilted language, an absence of slang and American colloquialisms. And this writing style leads Brussel to believe that the bomber is foreign-born. The doctor also notes that the vague threats and complaints against power utility giant Consolidated Edison reveal a certain psychological disorder. To Dr. Brussel, this was a clear case of acute paranoia. Typically, acute paranoia manifests in a person's mid-30s. And because the first Mad Bomber letters appeared 16 years ago, Brussel calculates that the perpetrator must now be about 50 years old. Based on the psychological profile he's crafted, the doctor believes that the terrorist can be tricked into revealing his identity. Brussel determines that the Mad Bomber craves attention and that if the police department goes public with their investigation, this would appeal to the bomber's sense of ego and draw him out. Brussel writes an open letter to the Mad Bomber in which he asks him to clarify his motivations and has it published in a newspaper called the New York Journal American. And in fact, several days later, the Journal American does receive a response from the Mad Bomber. The bomber reveals that the root of his rage stems from an accident that left him permanently disabled while working for the utility company Consolidated Edison. And he provides one highly specific clue. The date of his injury, September 5th, 1931. With Consolidated Edison's help, police link the date to an accident report filed by a former employee named George Metesky. And just like Brussels' profile predicted, Metesky is a 53-year-old European immigrant. On January 21st, 1957, police arrest George Metesky, bringing his 17-year crime spree to an end. State-appointed psychiatrists diagnose Metesky with paranoid schizophrenia and deem him unfit to stand trial, proving there is some truth to his nefarious nickname. He's committed to the Matawan Mental Institution in upstate New York, where he serves a 16-year sentence. In the wake of the case, Dr. Brussel's pioneering use of criminal profiling leaves a lasting impact on police departments all over the world. The real significance of his work was to shine the light of awareness on this new form of crime-fighting tool. And today, in the New York City Municipal Archives, this file, which meticulously documents the DA's case against the Mad Bomber, is preserved as a record of a reign of terror that eventually revolutionized investigations everywhere. Less than 100 miles south of Louisville is the small country crossing of Horse Cave, Kentucky, a quaint village whose main street boasts numerous buildings on the National Historic Registry. But while it has much to offer above ground, it's what's below that's truly remarkable. 
Deep beneath the Earth's surface lies a twisting labyrinth of natural limestone caves and passageways. And a local institution dedicated to these natural phenomena is the American Cave Museum. Here, fossils, specimens of cave-dwelling creatures, and massive stalactites tell the story of this mysterious subterranean world. But among these many natural wonders, it's one handcrafted artifact that tells a particularly harrowing underground tale. It's about 16 inches high, weighs about 20 pounds. It's why it's made out of plaster. According to museum director David Foster, this is a bust of an intrepid explorer who was once at the center of a nerve-wracking rescue that gripped the nation. At one time, he was one of the most famous people in America. Who is this man? And how did he change the nation's landscape forever? 1925, southwestern Kentucky. Local farmers, fed up with Kentucky's waning economy, are looking for a new way to make money off the land. And there's one natural resource the region has in great abundance, caves. About half of Kentucky is underlain by limestone, and it's a very soft rock, so it's very easy to dissolve away caves. One of these natural wonders has already become an international sensation. The aptly named Mammoth Cave, which stretches under the state for miles. Mammoth Cave was one of the first international tourist attractions in the United States. And one man looking to cash in on this craze is a 38-year-old spelunker named Floyd Collins. Floyd Collins was a unique character. He was fascinated by the caves. And so Floyd began to make a living going around to farmers and telling them, hey, I'll explore on your land, and if I find a cave, we can split the proceeds and we'll both make money. Collins believes that Mammoth Cave is just one part of an even larger underground network that spreads for miles beneath the rolling hills of Kentucky. And Floyd is determined to find another entrance to this sprawling subterranean world. On January 30th, 1925, Collins is prospecting on a neighbor's farm when he finds a crack in the ground that could be the passageway he's been looking for, a site known locally as Sand Cave. Sand Cave is a nice-sized opening that very quickly narrows into a tight crevice. Nevertheless, Collins is determined to push on through this impossibly tight space. Just then, disaster strikes. A chunk of limestone breaks off from the ceiling and lands directly on his left leg. The veteran explorer finds himself trapped. His foot was literally held tight against the cave walls. He just couldn't move. Floyd Collins can do nothing but pray for help. Days later, Collins' brothers realize he's missing and take to the woods in search of him. Soon, they spot some gear by a cave's entrance. When they call down, Collins yells back in response, telling them he's stuck. The brothers drop a rope into the crevice and try pulling him out. But Floyd's leg won't budge, so they lower down food and water and run to get help. Authorities rush to the scene, and so does the press. His word slipped out that Floyd Collins was trapped in a cave that ballooned into a national news story. 
Below ground, Collins is running out of time. It doesn't take very long for hyperthermia to start to set in. If they didn't find a way to get him out soon, he wasn't going to get out of that cave. Fortunately, the rescue team has an idea that just might work. Instead of pulling him out through the cave's narrow entrance, they begin digging an underground shaft to reach Floyd from another angle. But they'll need to move quickly. They're literally racing against time, digging this shaft to try to get to Floyd while he was still alive. Can they save the trapped explorer before it's too late? It's 1925 in southwestern Kentucky. For days, adventurer Floyd Collins has been trapped in the narrow entrance of an underground cave pinned by a fallen boulder. Rescuers determine that to free Collins, they have to tunnel down from above. But can they reach him before it's too late? As rescue workers dig, all seems to be going according to plan. But then something goes horribly wrong. Parts of the cave began to collapse in. That was the point that the rescue began to be lost. The collapse cuts off the explorer from any food and water. And rescue workers are forced to stop digging while they secure the shaft to prevent further collapse. By the time they get to Collins, almost three weeks after he was first trapped, it's too late. They estimated that Floyd had probably died three or four days before they got to him of exposure. As the news is broadcast across the country, a shocked public mourns the tragic loss. But Floyd Collins' story doesn't end there. In the years following Collins' death, scientists studying the caves beneath Kentucky confirm what the explorer had suspected all along. Floyd believed that many of these caves were far more extensive than anybody ever really knew. And Floyd's beliefs were very true. The caves that Floyd explored are part of the longest cave system in the world, going over 400 miles. The stunning discovery even gets the attention of the U.S. government. And in 1941, the Great Subterranean Cavern is designated a national park. And today, at the American Cave Museum in Kentucky, Floyd Collins is memorialized with this bust, which reminds visitors of one man's intrepid sense of adventure and passion for these national treasures. From a culinary catastrophe to a newsworthy naturalist, a subterranean tragedy to a pioneering puppeteer. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.